Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over 100 years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Institute for Oral History, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, the white primary. But in Texas, African-American men could vote in general elections, but they were not allowed to vote in primaries. Dr. Catherine Keeler-Walters of the Texas State Historical Association tells us about the 100-year-old Waco court case that sparked civil rights reforms around the country. Artie Evans is just as strong a figure as Rosa Parks. Really interesting topic, and I can guarantee you that 99.5% of the people listening don't know much about this topic. And now, join us on a trip into Waco's past. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco, I'm safe when I reach San Antonio. Dr. Catherine Keeler Walters is with us today. She's with the Texas State Historical Association. She's an assistant editor of the Handbook of Texas History, which is a great resource. Everyone knows who's interested in Texas history knows about the handbook, and so she's out there making sure it's correct. And how did you guys become introduced? We posted a entry on the KKK on the Waco History app and website, which you can check that out at wacohistory.org or in the Apple Store or Google Play and Mm -hmm. download that. But we posted an entry on the KKK and there were some errors in that entry based on some research that we had done that was that was incorrectly done. And so Dr. Walters reached out to us and helped us by pointing that out. And so we've got it more right now than it was. This is what people do to her all the time (laughs) with the Handbook of Texas History. And so that led to a conversation, hey, and she's told me more about a research that she had done here locally, and it's fascinating research, very important research. And I said, we got to have her on to talk about this because it's a really interesting topic. And I can guarantee you that 99.5% of the people listening don't know much about this topic. So it'll it'll be new info for a lot of folks. Well, Catherine, can we hear a little bit more about your background? How'd you get started? Why do you love history? Stuff like that. I got my degree in history at Texas Lutheran University. My master's at what was then Southwest Texas. And then I just finished my PhD last year at A&M. I've just always been interested in history. I grew up, my mom used to take us to the museum because so she volunteered there and I was the one wandering around all day. <laughs> and it's just always been a part of my life. So, And I like the uh, investigation of it all, mm-hmm. the hunt for all of the tidbits and the research that no one else can find. And so that tends to be what I end up doing is finding sources or research that no one else seems to be able to find very easily. <laughs> well, I did my master's thesis on Waco, and I was looking at World War One, and I actually wanted to study the Klan in Waco. And I ran across a court case that no one had ever written about, and 
I had only found a couple of mentions, contemporary uh, mentions, on the white primary court case about voting rights. Since no one had talked about it, I decided that I should look into that. I found it really, really fascinating, considering it was also around the time the Klan was rising up in the state. It was an interesting culmination of issues in one place. Waco gets talked about a lot with the Klan, but no one had researched the Klan in Waco, and I didn't realize these two stories were going to overlap as well as they did. I guess what I'm here to talk about today is the white primary and the local activism for voting rights, as well as the rise of the Klan. Can we back up a little bit, mm -hmm. just because I think often the way Jim Crow is talked about in Waco, I think, is the violent aspect of the repression that Jim Crow kind of brought to the African-American community. What's really interesting about your work is you do, of course, point that out, but you also point out the political oppression and how disempowering that was. But I think to start out with, just for our general audience, can you talk a little bit, again, too big a question, but a little bit about the Jim Crow system and what that, what I mean by that and what that looked like in Waco in this period we're looking at. Right. Jim Crow is a euphemism, one that I actually really don't like. It's just, it doesn't really explain what was going on. It was a system of segregation laws, a system of disfranchisement laws to push African-Americans as well as Mexican-Americans into a second-class citizenship position. And what that looked like at the time was residential segregation in Waco, which I'm sure most people in Waco are aware of. Certain wards would be black neighborhoods, black schools, but it also meant fewer voting rights. And if you aren't voting, then you don't get taxes to pay for your roads or your schools or fire services, just basic services that you get from the city or the county. And they didn't get that kind of response because they didn't vote. They weren't allowed. There's also economic disfranchisement is now the new phrase. Um, basically, they were pushed into certain jobs. They weren't allowed to have certain occupations, and they were denied access usually to higher education unless they already had some money so they could leave, go get that education, and come back. In Waco and in McLennan County and in much of Texas, African Americans tended to be in only certain positions such as farm labor or they were tenant farmers, sharecroppers. Women, black women usually were relegated to domestic house help, so they cleaned and they cooked. The middle class in Waco, that was what was so special because the black community was strong enough because they had education facilities here. Black families would move to Waco so their kids could go to school so they could get better jobs. And because of that, there was a thriving black middle class here where in a lot of places in Texas, you didn't see that. Mm -hmm. uh, only in larger cities would you see that. And so here there was a black bank owned by Robert Lloyd Smith, who was the head of the Farmers Improvement Society. There were a black pharmacist, Dr. Fridia, a black lawyer, Richard D. Evans, grocers and many, many black-owned businesses. And that allowed that community to be more independent of white oversight. That means that they could go to work in a relatively safe environment and they could kind of regulate their lives in a way that people who work for white individuals, especially those who can get off the farm and they had to work as farm laborers, they couldn't get away from that oversight. So their lives were very much controlled by white society. 
Can you talk a little bit about the limitations on the franchise for mm -hmm. African Americans and, and the way that system worked and how it had evolved over time? Yes, that's different than what we typically hear about in other Southern states. What we had in Texas was the Terrell election laws, which were passed in 1903. We had the poll tax and the white primary, and those were the two disfranchising devices that we had in Texas. Other states, you hear about literacy clauses, you hear about grandfather clauses, but in Texas, African-American men of voting age could vote in general elections, but they were not allowed to vote in primaries. Primaries were considered at the time a private organizational election. They were barred locally. So the interesting part about this particular device was that it was local control. The state passed it, and the Democratic Party of the state, the executive committee, decided to give local control over who is qualified to vote in the primary, with the understanding that Democratic primaries would be for whites only. But that was not stated by the state at this time, and wouldn't be until 1923. So in 1919, or around the wartime, it was an interesting period where everything started to shift. But before World War I, African Americans could vote in general elections, but they could not vote in the white primary. The Democratic primary was the main election to win, to win the state. Republican Party just didn't have the numbers that they used to have, plus they were split. There's the black and tans and the lily whites, the lily whites who wanted to make the Republican Party an all-white party. And so they were fractionalized. They just didn't have the numbers to compete with the Democrats. So winning the primary, the Democratic primary, was the way to win the state. Even though there's all these other parties, it becomes a one-party state politically as the only party that has any power. Mm -hmm. There's the Socialist Party and the Republican Party and the Green Party. There's all these other parties, but they just don't have any numbers to do anything except for break things down a bit. That starts to change in 1918. 1918, we have the woman primary suffrage law in the state of Texas. Then the 19th Amendment is passed, so women get the right to vote. And it's this weird time period when people who didn't have the vote would try to get the vote. And so this is coming off of World War I and the attitude that we're all pitching in and we all have to do our part and it's the war to save the world for democracy. Now everybody wants their democracy. So they want full voting rights and the only way they can get that is by voting in the primary. And so I'm assuming that problem with not being able to vote in the primary is if you don't like the choices that the white people have put out there, you don't really have an option. You have you can vote for who wins the primary, but that's it, right? Right. Well, in the general election, the Republicans do put up a candidate usually, but in only a few places and local places do Republicans even have a chance. Mm -hmm. So most people who are Republican tend not to vote. There's no point. So there's a lot of apathy. If you want your vote to count... You vote Democrat, and you have that option if you're white. So a lot of former third-party populists or mm. socialists end up voting Democrat right around World War I because of that. Yeah, so you've got no power to pick the candidate. There are a few people who will campaign for Democrats, even though they're African-American. One of them is the lead plaintiff in a, the white primary case. He's actually campaigning for Jim Hogg to win governor in 1892, which is an interesting situation because Jim Hogg was the Democratic candidate, but the more progressive populist candidate. The conservative Democratic candidate was from Waco. His name was George Clark. George Clark ended up joining with Republicans as a fusion candidate. And Lewis Sublett from Waco actually campaigns for Jim Hogg against 
the local favorite, and almost gets lynched for it. He actually travels across the state, but he's not even allowed to vote in the primary. Hmm. So, <laughs> Let's pick up the story with him, because that's mm-hmm. the story of this case that I think is so interesting. And this is something you well connect in your research that comes out of this momentum of the franchise being expanded, the momentum of the Great War as a vehicle of uplift and Self-determination needs to happen here. If we're arguing, it needs to happen somewhere else. And so talk a little bit about this local case that you researched and tell us the story of that. The case actually happens in February of 1919, but the buildup to the case is earlier, obviously. In 1918, there is talk in the black community here in Waco among various different groups about trying to get, perhaps through the court system, the right to vote in the primary, to get full citizenship. That's what they called it. And there was a lot of talk about woman suffrage. And when woman primary suffrage passed in 1918, black women in certain parts of the state actually registered to vote. So this is something that's going on in the larger, larger atmosphere. This isn't just Waco. But in Waco, they actually had several very powerful individuals in black communities and black organizations across the state. So R.L. Smith, Robert Lloyd Smith, he was actually the head of the Texas Negro Business League. He was the uh, Booker T. Washington's lieutenant in Texas. That's what they used to call him before Washington died in 1915. And so he had quite a bit of power and quite a bit of respect. So people, when he said we need to do something, people listened in the black communities across the state. I don't have paperwork because a lot of these organizations don't have paperwork saved. I mean, lost over time. I believe Smith had something to do with it. I believe he was funding it under the table, much like Washington, Booker T. Washington funded a lot of litigation to go after segregation laws. But he didn't do it publicly because it would hurt fundraising for the organizations that he was a part of. And I think Smith was doing that as well. Artie Evans the black attorney in town, his name is Richard Evans. The D, I've never actually found what that <laughs> meant, but I think it's Durham. His mother's maiden name is Durham. And Lewis Sublet both become the faces and the names that go with this case. Sublet, Lewis Sublet is a grocer, and uh, there's an alley named for him in Waco, Sublet Alley. He owned quite a bit of property over there, including apartments that he had Italian tenants renting from him. He used to be a teacher. He had always been sort of a troublemaker, according to the people who really didn't like riling people up. He did not mind voicing criticism of city government, of county government. And when I talked to his granddaughter, who now lives in Pasadena, California, she said, yes, my brother was just like that always causing trouble. Everybody (laughs) called him crazy, but he got results. And so Sublet becomes the lead plaintiff. They file an injunction, a writ of mandamus, to make sure that they were not going to be turned away primary election day. And they take it to court and they sue a man named E.L. Duke. And just so you know, in the 1920s and the 19-teens, most Men went by their initials, so there's going to be a lot of initials. <laughs> when I did this research, ancestry was not a thing, and so I haven't filled in all of the initials yet. So the court case is Sublet v. Duke, and they are suing basically the city structure saying, you need to let us have the right to vote. We're being denied because of our race. Artie Evans goes to the courthouse, is in Irwin Johns Clark courtroom. Irwin Johns Clark 
the judge, that's George Clark, the one that ran for governor in 1892. That's his son. Who he campaigned against. (laughs) Who he campaigned against in 1892. Hmm. Sublet is a very interesting man. He goes on to continue to push people's buttons in the local administration. So flood control is taken care of, or the schools are repaired, or the water supply is protected from being put in right next to a cemetery. He's a squeaky wheel. Yes, definitely. (laughs) And it was necessary. Yeah, Um, We would call him an activist now. Yes. And he was considering the environment that they were all in, Mm -hmm. that the Jesse Washington lynching happened in 1916. There was an issue with black soldiers in 1917 that was almost like the Houston riot of 1917, which is a whole nother issue. Sublet was risking his life by doing this and being the main plaintiff. Artie Evans was risking his life as well and the lives of their family. So that becomes something that we don't talk about because it's not really in the newspapers. They don't mention this, but it's well known at the time. And they do get quite a bit of respect from the black community for even doing this uh, to the point where they call Artie Evans Honorable Evans, Mm -hmm. like you would call a judge. Mm -hmm. Sublet, some background on him. He's from Tennessee. He was born in slavery. He went to what becomes Fisk University before it's Fisk University during Reconstruction and becomes a teacher. First moves to Texas in the 1880s, goes to Orange, Texas first, then goes to Brenham, then comes to Waco and starts a school. He marries a former student of Fisk University as well, Ann Fletcher, now Ann Sublet, um, and she becomes a teacher with him. And then they become grocers. And she moves into the house and raises their four, five children. And they had this big two-story house, big, beautiful, white two-story house with a portico for their car and everything. It was gorgeous and not something you would suspect to be an African-American's home in Mm. Waco, in the 1920s and 19-teens. Is the house still there? No. Okay. No. Uh, the granddaughter actually sent me the picture. Okay. I've never actually seen Sublet's face because there's only one picture of Sublet that I have found, and it's so grainy and it's so far back that I can't actually I don't have a clue what he looks like. Hmm. When he becomes a grocer, that's when he starts to invest and starts to go to the city council and the county officials and starts... Becoming that squeaky wheel. He's the activist for the community. He's not as afraid as I think most people would be. So he's the one that is the lead plaintiff. Artie Evans is the one that uh, represents him. There are four plaintiffs total. William Lawson, who is a tailor in town, has his own shop. There is Henry Waite, who is a porter in a bank. I have no idea if it's Smith's Bank or not. I have no clue. And then there is, and then there's Dr. James C. Russell, who works at Paul Quinn College. They are the plaintiffs in this case. There will be another case in 1922 with a different slate of plaintiffs, but the same attorney. It's a real basic argument. Texas Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment all allow for voting rights and not to be barred by race. And the judge in the case, Erwin Johns Clark, agrees with them, which is astounding in 1919. And it's even more astounding when you stop and think that Erwin Johns Clark, his father is George Clark, who's a very powerful man and very wealthy man in Waco. His wife's family are part of the Koch family, Richard Koch, so the former governor, redeemer governor, who ended Reconstruction in Texas, and very famous and very hero worship in the state of Texas, to the point where there are buildings named after him on colleges. 
So he's coming from a politically powerful position. George Clark, the father, is also a Confederate veteran, and there is no indication that this man will decide this case in favor of African Americans voting. And he said that, yes, 14th Amendment, 15th Amendment, he agreed with the Texas Constitution, U.S. Constitution allows African Americans the right to vote. And it doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense until later. If he had a political agenda, if he had hoped to ever be elected, that was done. He did not have a political future whatsoever as a candidate. He'd only been appointed to positions before this. What he does say later is that he thought black votes should be used as a tool. He tells this to the U.S. Senate when he testifies as a former Klansman, saying, yes, I believe blacks have the right to vote and that they can be used as basically a block group of people that we can manipulate however we want. So this is not an altruistic decision. Mm. He's not progressive. Yeah, we shouldn't label him as progressive. No, there is nothing there that suggests that he is really of any different mind than actually his father was, which is why it's really fascinating to look at the 1892 election because he is the fusion candidate with Republicans, George Clark is, and Now we understand that he's not being progressive in 1892 and his son is not being progressive in 1919. Nevertheless, African-Americans have the right to vote. Now, when Evans went to court in this case, he did it with a particular timing in mind. He went to court at the very beginning of February, right after poll taxes had to be paid. They had to be paid on the last day of January. And so all through January, black community groups were having poll tracks drives. And no one seemed to at least publicly question why. Then the court case happens, and it's too short of a window to appeal it. So there's no way Hmm. that they're going to get an appeal through before the election. So So they got to vote? So they got to vote. And they kept the right to vote until 1922. And that's when the Klan is around. So it's this weird configuration of timing. And it was done purposefully. Because that case is won, the NAACP in Houston hires Artie Evans for their white primary case that is Lovey Griffith in 1921. That actually goes to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1924. Artie Evans is there in the Supreme Court, and they lose in 1924. But they are told by a judge that there is a case here. It's a moot point because that election is over, but there's a case here. And the NAACP pick up, basically pick up the rallying cry. Well, the NAACP come in and they pick up the mantle and they They finish it out in Smith versus All Right in 1944. Yeah, they pick up the it is a cause. Yes. And so because there is a case to be made in Texas and there's a lot happening in election laws between that that allow that to happen. And one of those things is making the white primary a true white primary by law. So before 1923, it's local option. After 1923 or 1923 and after it is actually stated in state law that the primary is for whites only. And that's when the NAACP go, oh, we have you now. (laughs) We can take that to court for sure. So it's all these little bitty pieces that came together at the right time in the right place, a lawyer and a plaintiff that were willing to stick their neck out there, Mm -hmm. a judge who seemed progressive but really wasn't, who who made a ruling, and then other people kind of running with it that, that led to all this. Yes, and doing so under threat of death, Mm. considering... The environment, the racial environment at the time, because this is 1919. And in 1919, across the country, there's racial violence. Yeah. There's also anti-socialism violence as well. And African-Americans... And they're connected. And they're connected. Mm -hmm. NAACP is often accused at that time of being socialist, of being communist, of being... The word at the time was Bolshevikism. 
And as far as they were concerned, they were all connected. So in 1919, there is a race riot, a brutal race riot in Elaine, Arkansas. There is a race riot in Longview, Texas. There's a race riot in Chicago and Washington, D.C. Lynchings start to go up in 1920, 1921, 1922. And so... It seems to be open season again, just like it was before World War I. During World War I, there was this at least attempt of a public face of racial harmony. Now, all the way through World War I, there is memos being passed around by the War Department, by various government and county organizations saying, well, we don't want anybody to get the wrong idea that they're actually going to get all these rights and things are going to be improved, but let's just say so. That way everybody gets along and everybody does their part for the war. Just propaganda. Right. Can you talk a little bit more about what we know about this first election cycle and and African-American participation in the election or if there was intimidation that happened or we can imagine the threat and pressure they were under, but I imagine the record's thin on this, but what we know about it. In 1919, the record is very thin. Mm -hmm. Sublet does not have papers as far as I'm aware of and I've looked. The family didn't even know about these court cases. Artie Evans did not have papers as well, and I found his granddaughter, and she was unaware of this particular case, although she was very aware of his career and what he devoted it to. But there were no papers. What we know of the election we get from the newspaper, and the newspaper said not very many African Americans voted. It could have been fear of intimidation and backlash of violence. There were several racial violent incidents involving various different crimes in that time period. So it is quite possibly an atmosphere that was there. Mm -hmm. But the Klan had not shown up yet in Texas. And so that's not even a part of this equation. It could have been a class issue because the local organization that seemed to organize this litigation push was called the Forum. And it was a civic and literary group, according to the newspaper. It could have been a front for a developing NAACP chapter. However, in that NAACP chapter did not form until the summer of 1919. So it's not there yet. Mm -hmm. But there had been talk since 1918. And the NAACP was in Texas. They were in El Paso and in San Antonio by this point. They had the earliest ones in 1913 and 1915. It is interesting that the court cases for the white primary that were successful and remain successful come out of El Paso. And that would be Nixon versus Herndon and Nixon versus Condon. The interesting part of that is that is the earliest NAACP chapter. And there are relatives from that chapter, from the charter membership of that chapter in Waco. And so these organizations have a kinship group. There's Mm -hmm. obviously a dialogue going on back and forth. So Waco is fully aware of this growing activism across the state. They want to be a part of it. But I don't think they got the word out to everyone they could. I mean, it was a Waco-based organization. It wasn't a McLennan County-based organization. And to pay your poll tax costs money. And it also cost a trip to pay your poll tax into Waco. And most of the farmers and the farmhands outside of the city probably couldn't do that and probably were unaware of this litigation that was coming. So they don't get involved. So countywide, citywide, you don't see a whole lot of people coming in and voting. How much was that poll tax? At that time, it was about a dollar and 25 cents, a dollar 50 cents, depending on the place. I believe in Wanko, it was a dollar 25. What would that be like in today's money? 
Well, that's a good question. I'm assuming, especially for people who are working out in the fields and stuff, that may be a lot of money to them, especially something to give away for something that they may be intimidated from actually being able to exercise their right. Right. They weren't paid very much a week. Uh, farm hands were usually paid maybe 25 cents a day, maybe 50 cents a day, depending on what they were doing. So it could uh, be four days work. Yes. You know? And mm-hmm. in a place, in an environment where they had to pay for everything else, mm-hmm. it would have been a lot of money. For them, the middle class in Waco, on the other hand, probably had poll tax. The other thing we have to remember is that it's 1919. And so, if black men are allowed to vote in the white primary that is no longer white, black women are allowed to vote in the white primary that's no longer white. Mm. And that's a whole other issue because how many families can afford two poll taxes? Mm, right. So, that's, that's a different thing. Now, most African American men, especially African American middle class men, were all in favor of women's suffrage. They wanted that. They felt that was a a good idea. But paying the poll tax for two people, that would have been Mm -hmm. quite a bit of money. That would have actually been at least a half a month wages, if not almost a month of wages for a farming family, farm laboring family. So they they can't afford that if they had children. Trace the, so the career of Honorable Richard Evans. Can you trace his career for us after this and what you know of his career, what you're able to find out of his career? Yes. I've actually done a lot of work on Evans. Mm -hmm. I found him really fascinating to the point where I pretty much have worked on him since I finished the thesis about Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. Richard Evans continued to fight against the white primary. In 1922, there was another court case here in Waco and they lost, which just basically turned the tide back to pre-1919 for them. But he worked on the Lovey Griffith case, as I said, in 1921, and that continued to 24. He continued to work for locals in various court cases, but he also worked statewide in recruiting for the NAACP. He helped start many, many chapters across the state. They didn't have a long life in the 19-teens, but they make a comeback in the 1920s, and he's a big part of that. He's recruiting across class lines, unlike they did initially. He ends up becoming state president of the NAACP in 1936. Before 1936 and after 1919, there's just a string of cases. He consults on the white primary cases. He actually pushes the NAACP agenda of localizing certain cases and not taking other cases to court because it's going to hurt the cases that the NAACP was fighting for. And so he's actually getting pushback from a lot of places. There are dozens of white primary cases after 1919. And he's trying to keep the activism going so people join the NAACP, but he's trying to help the NAACP control what actually makes it to court so they can use their funds wisely. They don't undercut themselves with various court decisions. He is also the head of Independent Voters League. He's one of the directors, the state directors of the NAACP. He's on their letterhead, their national letterhead for years. He actually makes it into Time magazine in 1923. And in 1938, he dies here in Waco. His uh, car is hit by a train on a Sunday. It's interesting because when he died, he was the president of the state chapters of the NAACP and had this long career of fighting for voting rights. His family believes it was foul play. However, finding evidence of something like that would be almost impossible. Mm-hmm. But uh, he does die in downtown Waco, about a mile from his house. When I originally did this research, there was a story that said that he typically took his children on a Sunday drive after church. And that Sunday he chose not to. And that story was to imply that perhaps he knew something bad was coming. Perhaps he had received threats. 
And he just really didn't feel like it was a safe thing to do. So that day he didn't take his children and his car was hit by a train. It didn't get a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. It really didn't Mm -hmm. locally at all. National newspapers, if they were African-American newspapers, they did pay attention. Mm -hmm. The San Antonio Register had a big spread on it, made the front page. Pittsburgh Courier in Pennsylvania had a lot of information on it. And it was really odd because he died within 24 hours of James Weldon Johnson dying and his car was hit by a train. (laughs) Oh my goodness. In Maine. In Maine. Mm -hmm. Again, (laughs) don't really think you can prove a conspiracy between Maine and Texas. But, uh, you know, it, it it did bring up some questions. So this period of his career between 1917 and to his death, he's working, it seems like, fairly exclusively on this issue? No. No? No. Uh, So locally, he also works for whoever in the African-American community will hire him. Obviously, we're not seeing a whole lot of white clients. Somebody's not getting paid. Robert Lloyd Smith, the banker, Mm -hmm. actually used him for people who hadn't kept up on their paying of their loans. Mm -hmm. And so he would take them to court. Some of the local fraternities, Freemasons, Prince Hall, Knights of Pythias, they would hire him for people who hadn't paid their dues as well. He took jobs where he could. He'd only been a lawyer since 1912. My thesis says he graduated from Yale, and I said that because that's what was in the secondary work. Well, he actually graduated from Howard Law School in 1912 and moved to Waco right after that. Um, Did he office on Bridge Street as well? Yes. Okay. He lived on 10th Street, and his house is gone as well. It's like everywhere... It's just flat land mm-hmm. where all these people lived. He actually has a connection to Jesse Washington as well. That's the first major case he did was to represent a man named Andrew Smith, who was the editor of the Paul Quinn College Weekly. And this was the libel suit. The libel suit. Smith had published an article stating that, let me set the scene, Jesse Washington was lynched because he, and I'm going to say allegedly because he didn't get a fair trial, Jesse Washington was lynched because he allegedly killed a woman named Fryer. That's the last name. Smith published an article stating that the husband had killed the wife. George Fryer had killed his wife and accused Jesse Washington of it. And either the Chicago Defender reprinted it or he was reprinting a Chicago Defender article because the exact same article appears in the Chicago Defender. George Fryer sues Paul Quinn College and Smith for libel. Smith actually is found guilty. And he has to do hard time. Richard Evans wrote to the crisis who had written, the crisis had written what is called the Waco Whore article about what happened to Jesse Washington. So Evans probably figured the crisis would give him some help in getting some money to pay Smith's fines and get him out of at least the hard time part of his sentence. I have no idea how long he was doing that. And then Paul Quinn College was found guilty of libel in Erwin Johns Clark's courtroom, but Erwin Johns Clark decided on a fine of a dollar. So it was a token gesture. Mm -hmm. And if I remember, it was like a $75,000 suit or something like that. It was a lot of money. It was. Yeah. Yes. George Fryer, I'm sure, did not feel like he got justice. Yeah. And as far as I know, that family still lives in the area. At least they did when the whole dome issue was going on. Yes, they did. We're going to do a episode on... Jesse Washington. We've talked around the Washington story, mm-hmm. but we'll do an episode. That's on a hard story to yeah. do. Hard but necessary. Yes, mm-hmm. especially here. So did anything become of Sublet? Sublet was nearing the end of his life. Sublet 
as I said, I mean, he was born, he was born in the 1850s, and he was from an activist family. I have traced the family all over the country, and they literally do live all over the country. He died in 1933. He's buried in, what's it called, Green? Green Greenwood. Greenwood. Mm-hmm. I was told Artie Evans was buried there, too. I have not found his headstone yet, but um, Lewis is buried there. His wife is buried there. His son carried on the grocery for a while, uh, and when he retired, his two children, Lewis's grandchildren, they left Waco. They were done with Waco. But he died in 1933. He continued to push the immediate situation. He actually makes some enemies because in 1920, blacks can vote in the primary, but there's going to be an African-American candidate for the Republican Party in a local race. And he actually actively campaigns against that. He publicly says we should not be pushing this beyond the boundaries that we already have. We need Hmm. to kind of take this slow. And it is an uh, accommodating stance that was very unusual Mm. for Sublet. I don't know if he knew something behind the scenes or if he had made a deal, but a lot of people considered that being a traitor. But he Mm -hmm. felt like the Republican Party had not done them any favors and had felt that way for a while. And he was trying to get more people to vote Democratic to get the Democratic Party, at least locally, to pay attention to black neighborhood issues that he felt was important, like education and streets and flooding so forth. Mm-hmm. He continued on that route, but he uh, he didn't live much longer. Mm. And his son, Billy, never took up the mantle that his father left. He didn't really do any of that. So if we think about any of these two men, which I would say most of the folks listening have never heard of before, and we think about the work they did and kind of some of the, the things that they embraced, this is a question I never ask as a historian, but I'll ask you, I mean, what should we take from this story? I mean, what as we think about the model of what they pushed for and what they fought for, what are some things that, especially you after you spend so much time with this topic and not only looking at the story, but looking at their individual lives and what they pushed for, but what, what do you take away as far as the significance of this? Well, as a historian, I think a lot of the stories that we haven't told, that we haven't uncovered, are the stories of everyday people making significant change. We talk about civil rights movement. We talk about the 1950s and 60s. We talk about Rosa Parks. Artie Evans is just as strong a figure as Rosa Parks. Not to take away from Rosa Parks, but my point is, is that just like what we celebrate today for the 1950s and 60s, we have that in every single community. There are these individuals who take those risks, then get lost in time and not remembered. Artie Evans, and that's what he went by, Artie Evans, he came from somewhat humble beginnings. I mean, he did have privileges that other African Americans did not have. He was born and raised in Burleson County in a town that's no longer there named Pittsbridge. His father was white. His mother was black. And it was an unusual situation, a very unusual situation, because the father actually had a wife, a white wife, white adult children when he passed away. And he had five black children who were children with this black woman named Belle. He leaves all of his property to Belle, not to his wife and adult children. Mm-hmm. So in his will, he states, she should have all the property so she can educate our children. And Artie Evans got an education. And he well, went to college, he went to Prairie View, and then he ended up going to Howard Law. He was a teacher, and then he became a lawyer. And that is because he had that opportunity as a young child. So he came from very little, but... 
he did have a, a leg up that other people didn't have, whereas Sublet, there's no indication of that mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. And Sublet came from very humble background. All of his brothers and sisters did very well because they got each other through school. So one would go to school at a time. He went first, then his other brother, Major Sublet, went to school. And they all went to Fisk. One ended up becoming an attorney and went to a Harvard Law School. They spread across the country, and they did fairly well, but only because they worked together from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. They did not have that inheritance that yeah. Richard Heavens had. So what I see in this is that everyday people, when they get together, when they vote, when they push the right buttons together collectively, they can really make change. But it takes a lot of courage, especially at that time, to actually do that. And it took a while. Neither one of them saw Smith be all right in 1944. Mm-hmm. So, and by 1944, actually all of them, all of their grandkids had moved out of the state. So there weren't Sublets and Evans from that family here anymore. And it sounds like the story of Evans is, even if you don't have a very good background, but you have something, you maybe have more than others, and you should use that to help. Right. And to be fair, his son actually moved to Washington, went to Howard Law School as well, and then eventually started passing for white. Whereas Artie Evans stayed and used the power he had to help the community. Those are the choices. You painted a bit of a picture, but also the courage to do it in such a time uh, where the threat of death, the threat of violence, the threat of retribution was so real and tangible. And so just the courage that, that they all showed in fighting for change that they never really saw. They got a glimpse of it, but they right. never really saw it fully come. So. Right. And I asked the granddaughter about if she had heard stories. And her mother, who's named Gloria Bell Evans, Bell for Evans's mother, she was born in 1927. So when he died, she was 11 years old. And she had a younger brother. And they were very young to lose their dad. Now, their dad was older. This was his third marriage. And Artie Evans had adult children. It was a very tight-knit bunch. When Gloria Bell and her brother and mother moved. They moved actually where the adult children were living in Arizona. But she did not know of the threats. She did not, could not tell me any of that. But there was a niece that said that the parents didn't talk about it in front of the kids, but they would shut the door and when the conversation would start. So she knew that they were talking about mm. something of this nature. But she said she, they kept it from the kids. They you know, protected the kids, as parents do. So it's hard to get that kind of information. I want to point out, though, it's not Destardy Evans who is risking his life. It was his wife and children. That's right. And his wife, you know, Lord knows what she faced every day because everybody knew where he lived. He was in the phone directory. Well, it's all these unnamed people that went to poll tax parties and went to the polls and... Mm-hmm. You know, all those folks that we, we won't know their name. but Right. Yeah. And Robert Lloyd Smith, as I said, I think he was probably financing mm-hmm. it under the table. His stepson, his adopted son, was actually a lead plaintiff in the second case in okay. 1922. And he died in 1923. I think he was ill. A lot of these individuals, Russell, I think, died in 1920, 1922. A lot of these individuals died pretty mm-hmm. soon after. Of natural causes, usually. Artie Evans is the only one that... An interesting mm-hmm. death that yeah. we don't know what, what happened. Well, Catherine, I appreciate you coming and just the hours and hours and hours and hours of research that you sp- 
spent on this, on just a really important story that, that the community needs to know more about. So I want to thank you for coming, but I also want to ask if there's anything going on at the handbook that you'd want folks to know about. Tell us a little, little bit about the Handbook of Texas History if folks don't know about it and they're listening. Well, the Handbook of Texas History is an encyclopedia online of Texas history events, uh, places, and people. Right now, we have a project going on called the Handbook of Texas Women, and we are taking suggestions for women that should be in, and we're writing new entries and revising old entries. The Handbook of Texas has been around since the 1950s, and some of our entries were written in the 1950s, and it's time to update some of those, so we're working on that as well. (laughs) It's across the board. We have quite a few that have been added recently. We also have several ebooks that are available. Um, there's three right now on Handbook of Texas Women. The most recent is on voting rights for the uh, suffrage centennial. We're also working on new projects for the future, which I won't talk about here. Yeah. The Handbook of Texas Women, it, we're really proud of it. It's quite a venture, and there are we've added so many new topics and so many new women who were kind of like Artie Evans, yeah. you know, grassroots folks that did something and put them in there. Farrah Fawcett should be coming soon. Oh, wow. (laughs) Randy will actually read that one. You know, we'll put pictures in, but you know, certain ones, not... There's a poster I think I still have that you can use. So uh, she actually, it's the uh, number one selling poster in history in U.S. The red bathing suit. Mm -hmm. It still is. Randy's too young. He doesn't know what I'm talking about. So we have a lot of new ones, suffrage women and ranching women and there's a couple of sheriffs in there Mm -hmm. and legislators are coming up pretty soon and we've got a quite a bit going on so that's great it's a great research great resource and it's free Check it out. it's free that's right it's best <laughs> publicly available yeah. well thanks again for coming sure yeah, thanks i really enjoyed it thank you cross the brazos and waco ride hard and i'll make it by dawn cross the brazos and waco thanks for listening to the waco history podcast Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. Time ago, as he dropped the guns that she hated, in the muddy Brazos below Cross the Brazos and wake home Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and wake home I'll walk straight in old San Antonio Then the night came alive with gunfire He knew that at last it'd been found As the ranger's badge showed brightly El bandito lay on the ground Carmela knew he was dying That all of her dreams were in vain As she kissed his lips for the last time She heard him whisper again Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio 
I'm safe when I reach San Andreas.